Welcome back in everyone to a fabulous new episode of Whisper in the Wings from Stage Whisper. We are joined by two fantastic artists today who have a great show that is currently playing and we're so excited to be sharing that with you. Joining us today we have the director Jack Serio and the playwright Joey Merlo who are part of Transport Group and Lucille Laurel Theater's presentation of On Set with Theta Barra. It's playing now through March 9th at The Brick, and you can get your tickets and more information by visiting transportgroup.org and lortel.org. This is a fabulous show, and we are beyond excited to be sharing it with you. It's it's very cool in its presentation and its storytelling style. So with that, let's go ahead and bring on our guests, Jack, Joey. Welcome to Whisper in the Wings from Stage Whisper. Hi, it's great to be here. Thank you. I'm very excited to have the both of you here. I'm excited to dive into this great story, this great show. And just a little blurb that I received in the press release, I was hooked on what we're going to be talking about. So, Joey, why don't I start with you first? Can you please tell us a little bit about what Onset with Theta Barra is about? Sure. A synopsis is that Iris, who is a genderqueer teen, runs away from home and from their two gay fathers to find their idol, the silent film star, Theta Barra, who was the original vamp and is an actual silent film star from the late teens and early 1920s, but in who, but who in our play is a literal consciousness-consuming vampire. And one of Iris's fathers also happens to be a detective, Detective Finale, and he goes on the hunt for his missing child and worlds collide. And the play is uh, looking at identity crisis and identity consumption. It's it's a kind of coming of age story. And there are different themes that it engages with as well as different time periods that it kind of splices together. That's very cool. Very exciting. Curious to know with, with all all of this happening in that. How did you come up with the idea for the show? I Someone asked me this last night and I, you know, I have a hard time remembering because it doesn't feel very linear in my brain. I, yeah, I, Theta Barra had, was somebody that I, you know, had thought about on and off since middle school. When I was in middle school, there was this, this thing on Yahoo where you would, you would, download a picture of yourself and then it would upload your celebrity doppelganger. And so when I did it, it, it gave me back Theta Barra and I didn't know who she was. And this picture, this black and white picture of this vamp kind of like looking hypnotizingly at the camera freaked me out a little bit. And then I, I did some research and I was enamored with Theta Barra and very interested in who she was and in the mythology of Theta Barra, because the actual person who who played this vamp and this persona, Theodosia Goodman, there wasn't a lot of information about her biographically. I think I was able to find one biography in college. And other than that, very little information was known, but I was fascinated by that and fascinated by how the studio systems, along with Theta herself, had created this, you know, kind of mythical vamp creature. And I was at Brooklyn College in my last semester of their MFA playwriting program. And I was taking a, an, a it, was, it was called Aesthetic Alphabets. 
and it was uh, experiments in poetry and in other mediums. It was a class that was being led by the poet Monica de la Tour. And she had this picture prompt assignment and somebody bought, brought in this picture and that was the picture that I received. And it was of this kind of snowy tundra landscape with these um, very flat looking, almost like Western movie style homes, but they were painted in bright colors like purples and blues. And they had weird things on them like upside down crucifixes. And, and there was a bright light on them. So it felt like a movie set. And then there were kind of tracks and footprints in the snow, but it was, com it was an empty set completely void. And so when I saw it, Theta Barrow, who I hadn't thought about in a long time, kind of flashed into my head. And I thought, oh, this is where, you know, she would live. If if Theta, the pers the persona and the and the mythological figure of Theta were alive, and you know, if she were a 139-year-old vamp, I would imagine that she would live in some version of this like, you know, studio set that's like hidden away in a snowy mountain landscape somewhere so that she can have her privacy and then I thought of this you know I was like well she would need somebody that was kind of a caretaker of sorts like a, a Renfield figure or you know kind of butler figure and so I thought of this character Ulysses and so the play started as a dialogue between Ulysses and Theta but from the very beginning I I was interested in kind of blurring of identity because I thought I was interested in this idea of world building and especially if you're a very famous person and a very famous and rich person I think you have the ability to literally world build and those who come into your orbit kind of they have to either live in your world or not and they become a part of that ethos and I was interested in this blurring of identity that can happen and from there you know, I I don't really, I know that from the very beginning, I wanted there to be a marriage of form and content. And I wrote the play originally as a kind of stream of consciousness where all of these characters, since the play is about identity, where all of these characters are, you know, multiple voices, but that they're coming through one kind of vessel or one being. And so the original script was the characters were kind of color coded and there weren't even names and it was just monolith of text. Yeah. And I'm sure things that were on my mind kind of came into play. I think it was a, a natural to to think about gender identity feels natural when thinking about identity in general. So maybe that's where, you know, Iris coming into play. And yeah. That is fascinating. I love that. What an incredible person this Theda Barrow was. That's incredible. I love the impact they've had on you. Jack, I want to bring you in the conversation now. I'm curious to know, how did you come upon this piece? I met Joey a couple of years ago when I was directing a play called This Beautiful Future at Theater Lab, which is a small venue in the Garment District in New York. And Joey was working there at the time. And it's run, the, the space is run by this incredible woman named Orietta Crispino. So I was familiar with Joey kind of circumstantially and because I was doing this show there. And then a couple months later, Orietta reached out and said that Theater Lab was going to be producing a reading of Joey's play. And did I remember Joey? And I said, of course. And and that David Greenspan had agreed to perform in it and that they were looking for a director. So Orietta kind of match made us. And then we did this kind of quick reading at, at Theater Lab. It was a public reading. We rehearsed for a couple of days. 
and read it in kind of the late spring of 2022. And then the project got picked up by the Exponential Festival last year and we got to properly make it. It was just a, a kind of additionally a short run. It only ran for eight days, but that was enough for folks to, to get excited about it and have an interest in, in bringing it back around. That is fantastic. And shout out to Theater Lab. We love, love that venue. Yes, the best. Great things happening down there. Now, as the show is currently running, I'm curious to know, Jack, what has it been like developing this piece and getting it up on its feet? It's been great. I mean, uh, this year's been really rough and tumble. We only had about a week to put it all back together. We'd done so much work on it last year that this it it feels like a kind of a natural extension of the, the first production. You know, that's such a short run. It felt like we were just kind of finding our footing by the time we were closing last year. So to have the opportunity to kind of continue that work has been really great. But you know, David, Joey, and I spent a lot of time developing the script and kind of carving out certain narratives in it and tailoring it even more to David's strengths. It felt like a really beautiful collaboration where the three of us have a lot of fun together. And I'm very fortunate that both Joey and David were receptive to some of my ideas as it pertains to staging with the play. So the show is staged as a seance with the audience sitting around a 32-foot-long table and kind of totally immersive in this hazy kind of low light room with the performance happening all around you. So once I brought that idea to Joey and he was receptive of it and David was receptive of it, we, we tailored the script in certain ways to that kind of environment. And also David, in addition to being just, you know, one of our, one of our great, great actors is also such a strong dramaturgical mind and elevated both mine and, and Joey's work so much just through, through working with him. And then getting to bring it back this year has been so exciting. I mean, David is such a consummate professional. He came in day one, you know, fully memorized off book and, you know, remembered 100% of the blocking from from last year. He's just so meticulous. So that meant, you know, what, what felt like it was going to be a very short amount of rehearsal time, just a week to put this all back together, actually felt incredibly generous because David was coming in so well prepared that it allowed us to just kind of deepen the work and tighten and refine and and work on kind of small details. But I, you know, I was just saying to Joey last night, we're, we're two performances in, two previews in, and already it feels like we've returned to the same kind of energy and excitement in the room that we had found last year making the piece, which is really lovely. And it's, it's such a communal show. That's something that feels really important to me in, in my work that audience, the audience's presence is kind of paramount for the show that, that, that nothing I, hopefully nothing I make ever feels like it could be happening without an audience there, that it feels like it's trying to wring the most out of the kind of liveness and the event of what's going on. And this show really in particular, because you are seated kind of elbow to elbow with folks and sitting across the table with folks. And, you know, you see people start to strike up conversations with other people and, and introduce themselves. And it really just feels like such a communal event. And that's been so lovely to return to. That is so wonderful to hear. What a great process. Yeah, it's been it's been so great. Jack, I want to stick with you first on this next question. I'm curious to know, with so many fantastic themes and, and storytelling ways happening here, what is the message or thought that you're hoping audiences take away from this piece? Yeah, I, th- I think Joey's written a kind of dense, complicated story, and I, I always am a bit skeptical of 
folks who feel like there's a single message to be taken from from any piece of art. It's it's very my very strong belief that that art is not propaganda, that that art is not in service of articulating a single uh, belief or political view. So, you know, I really think our, our, our best work, our, the best art creates the atmosphere for which kind of wisdom and knowledge can reveal itself and that you can find what you want to find inside of that piece. You know, that said, I think the themes of the play that I feel most drawn to are conflicts within certain generations of, of, of queer people. You have Detective Finale in the play who is a middle-aged queer person who, you know, he, he lives in the kind of present timeline of the play and who would have come up through the AIDS crisis and he's someone who kind of fought to normalize queerness, who, who fought for the ability to marry a man, the ability to kind of have what he would describe as a normal life with a family and a child. And and then you have his, his child, Iris, pushing back on that kind of point of view, pushing back on saying that that actually is a kind of conformative, conservative, almost destructive kind of idea of what queerness can be. And I think what's interesting about the play is that they're kind of both right and they're both wrong, that that the play is not interested in taking a side so much as it is in representing the mess of these conversations. So, you know, more than anything, I, I hope that people leave the play talking and debating and, and going out to some of the great gay bars near the play and, you know, parsing through its themes. And, you know, want to kind of, that, that feels like it answers the kind of content side of things on, on a formal side of things. You know, I just go to the theater so, so often and, and just feel so kind of profoundly bored by most of it. And I always say that my, I have just such a, like a well of admiration and love for, for theater, really the only thing I could ever imagine myself doing, but that love is built on such a disappointment in most of it, that it feels like so much of it isn't interested in the form or it takes the form for granted. So I also just hope that people come away appreciating the the theatricality of what we made. I think David is an absolutely singular performer and it is my sincere hope that, you know, the show is only about 60 minutes, that you come in and that you're able to listen very closely and, and that you're attentive to what we're doing because I think so often I see theater that gives me the permission to kind of just check out and sit back in my seat. And I hope at the very least what we're doing here is commanding your attention for 60 minutes and creating the feeling of, of just being in this room with other people and the alchemy that only kind of theater can, can make. So I, I suppose those are the, the two prongs of, of what I hope people walk away with. That is a fantastic answer. I love that. Thanks. Joey, I want to ask you the same question. I mean, these are your words that you've written. Is there a specific message or thought you hope that audiences take away from your work? I think, you know, Jack and I are on the same page about the kind of work that we're attracted to and I think as a writer I don't I don't presume that I have all of the answers or that it's my responsibility to solve the play entirely for an audience I'm interested in making space I actually think that that's making space is actually something that I think is like the theme of this overall process because I think that Jack David and I have made a lot of space for each other and for our designers and for our collaborators on this. And we want to make space for the audience as well. We want to invite them to enter a world and to have an experience. And 
they get to do that. And of course, there are, you know, many different things for them to engage with. I think I was interested in creating a play that almost felt like an ink blot and you can kind of see different shapes and you can, the different themes that you might be attracted to might appear depending on who you are, what your history is, what you're thinking about, what you're interested in, what you happen to catch. I think this is a play, you know, we've had many audience members our first time around at the Exponential Festival who wanted to come back and see it a second and third time, but we sold out so quickly that people were just like waiting in the hall or waiting outside the theater trying to get in. And now we're finding that we're having a similar experience where people who are seeing the show are buying, you know, second tickets and we'll come back and view it because I think that there's, it is an experience that's kind of like a roller coaster ride. And when you come off of it, I think there is a lot to sit with and to process. And I think it's a play that audiences can come back to again and again and again and, and allow, you know, make space, we're making space for the audience and they can make space for the play in return and for the content of the play and the experience of the play, because also it's been staged in a way that I think gives the audience a unique experience depending on where they sit. So Jack, you know, very smartly created this almost cinematic experience for the audience. And I think that that will bring people back again and again so that they can sit at different, different points at the table or around the room and have a slightly different experience. But I also think that, you know, one of the major themes for me that I think the play kind of arrives at is that Theta, who is this villain of the play, at least from Finale's perspective, is really just one side of the same coin and Finale's the other side and that the two of them are you know, one in the same, literally by the end of the play, that finale has to recognize that he's become the villain, that, you know, this this gay man who has had his own struggles and has fought so hard to have a quote unquote normal life and a marriage and to be able to hang his rainbow flag proudly outside of his suburban house now is coming up against a child who's challenging, who's challenging his ideas about gender and about heteronormativity and and he kind of he he has to recognize that there's that he's he's a villain and that there's a villain side to him as well and that theta as a kind of metaphor for queerness in the play is something that finale is trying to repress and ultimately by trying to kill this thing you know it's it's like the oscar wilde quote that every man kills the thing he loves. I think that finale, you know, this, this is a part of finale. Theta does live inside finale somewhere because Theta is, represents otherness and as a vamp was othered. And I think that finale who's tried so hard to be normal is trying to, to crush that and squash that within himself. That is fascinating. Oh, I love both of these messages. So fascinating. My final question for this first part is, who do you hope have access to on set with Fida Barra? And Jack, I'm going to start with you first on this. Young people, young queer people, uh, everyone, of course, but I, I think we need to get as many young people coming to the theater as possible. I think it, it, the industry is going to be in very difficult shape if we are not cultivating theater that feels accessible and interesting to 
to folks. It should be like going to the movies or going to a concert or going to a comedy show that it feels both affordable and cool and not like taking your medicine. I think people often talk about going to the theater like it's the thing they're supposed to do or it would be good for them. And we don't talk about a lot of other art forms that way. I think, you know, the the spirit of this play is it has uh, kind of a diverse reach. We're, we're doing a kind of an intergenerational LGBTQ plus night tonight, which I'm super excited about. And we're going to have different, you know, as we've been talking about the themes of this play, hopefully that's reflected in the audience tonight. We have different generations of, of queer folks there. And I'm so excited for that. But, you know, middle-aged queer people attend the theater, I think, a little bit more regularly than 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 young folks. So I feel a, a, a particular need to reach young people and, and get them in to see the show. So that's my answer. Absolutely. Say it again for the people in the back. We need younger audience members. And that doesn't just mean we're doing theater that suits them. It has to be accessible. It has to be affordable. And I love the idea that it can't be like taking your medicine. I love that. Joey, what about you? Who do you hope have access to the show? Yeah, we're on the same page about that, which is why we wanted to keep this play at the brick. We built it for the brick, which is not only an experimental theater that I think is is producing and presenting a lot of really interesting artists who would have a hard time finding a home elsewhere in our current theatrical landscape. But the Brick also serves as a community center. Teresa is the artistic director, Teresa Buchheister, the artistic director of the Brick, kind of holds court, you know, almost any day you, you walk by the Brick Ox, which is a separate space. They have a gallery space across the street. Teresa will be there with, you know, just groups of artists talking, chatting, hanging out, you know, after shows, before shows. It's a kind of bohemia that I think we we have with the Brick. And we really, it was really important to us to keep that. And our conversations with Transport and Lortel early on, we're kind of a pitch in that direction saying, you know, look, we'd love access to your audiences. Let's figure out how we can get these Manhattan audiences to Williamsburg, where some really cool, interesting things are happening. And then let's make it affordable enough and have ways of, you know, maintaining the audience, the younger, queer, diverse audience here in Brooklyn, and making sure that like everybody has a seat at the table, pun intended, because of the 30, 35 foot long table. And so so I think we're achieving that. And even last night, there was an older woman who came from Manhattan to see the play. And she said to me afterwards, she was like, I've just never been in a, never been in a theater like this. So many different people, all different kinds of people, different ages and everybody, you know, looks different. And I was like, yeah, I was like, <laughs> great. This is exactly what we, what we want to happen. And I think that there's real benefit. I think we're not actually giving those older, you know, very loyal theater goers a chance because they want to experience diversity in the theater. They're not, they don't want to, they don't want to shut people out. I mean, if they're going to the theater, you have to imagine that they, there's some kind of level of, you know, empathy and, and understanding. And I think that this is an exciting experience for them as well to feel like they're a part of a scene, to feel like they're a part of a vibe, which this play very, is very much invoking because the play is, you know, I think built as an experience, and I was actually talking with Teresa the other night about this because I think there are so many, you know, the and I think this goes this goes back to what Jack was saying about, you know, the plays that are are like taking your medicine. I think we're so used to that kind of theater and we're so used to plot driven 
theater. It's all about the plot and, and it feels, you know, very much like TV or film. And so what actually is going to, what, what, what is the, the thing that's unique about theater? What, what will make this stand out? It's that it's not like any of those things. It's actually, you know, it's, it's its own very unique experience. And when you're paying to come to the theater, you're paying for an experience. And what really excites me is, you know, when people are leaving, and I've heard this multiple times, even last year, especially last year, where people were using these words like exhilarated, refreshed, excited as they were leaving. And that, that made me feel just incredibly happy that, you know, people weren't leaving because I've left many shows feeling depressed, tired, drained, like, and, and this is what I want to give people. I think we're giving people this experience that, you know, it's like, it is like when you get off a roller coaster and you're like, whoo, I want to do it again. Let me get back in line. Well, on the second part of our interviews, we love to let our listeners get a chance to know our guests a little bit better. Pull a curtain back, if you will. And I want to start by asking the two of you, what or who inspires you? What playwrights, composers, or shows have inspired you in the past or are just some of your favorites? Joey, can I start with you first on that? Sure. Yeah. You know, I think I'm going to be specific about this play and the writers that because there are so many writers and plays that I've seen and artists who inspire me. So for this play, I would say that at some point, well, no, not at some point, it was New Year's Eve, the New Year's Eve before I wrote the play. And I wrote it in the spring of 2022. So it was, you know, January, it was January 1st, or I guess, December 31st of 2021, that I was sitting around a table at my friend Jess Barbagallo's house, who's an amazing actor and playwright, was recently in Agnes Berinsky's The Trees at Playwrights Horizons. And another friend of mine, Chris Giermo, who's currently in Bark of Millions, the Taylor Mac piece at BAM. These are artists that I really respect and admire and who are constantly introducing me to new and interesting things. And so conversations with them have been very inspiring. But on this particular evening, we decided to celebrate the new year with a reading. And so we picked, we picked Charles Ludlum and Charles Ludlum and we picked Irma Vep. And so, which is actually a play that I think David Greenspan was in long ago. And, and David knew Charles Ludlum, which, you know, again, is this. He's in it twice. Oh, he was in it twice. Yeah, so, David. Been it twice. Yes. So, you know, it's kind of funny that this was a play that I think I had already, I was already writing, I was working on Theta Bear and I kind of had ideas and, and was starting to write it, but, you know, and I've always loved Charles Ludlum, but there was something about reading that aloud together that I think really inspired me, this idea of how much one actor can, can do, you know, that, that the theater is actually, you don't need a lot, you just need your imagination and that we forget that a play is play and that as kids, you know, you're in your room with your toys and you totally are world building and you just enter on a completely different realm. And I think that we forget that as artists, we, we can do that. It doesn't all have to be heady. It doesn't all have to be, you know, plotted out and no, can, can we go to that, that space of play, that space of 
impulse and inspiration and can it be from our gut? Can it be from our hearts? Can we, can we really, you know, I think that, that that's theater at its best. And I think Charles Ludlum's work is an example of that where, you know, you don't need much. It's one person as an actor also playing with them, you know, playing, playing these different roles and creating this world through their play. So that was inspiring. I also think that Tennessee Williams inspires me in general. I think that he's my, you know, most beloved canonical playwright. And suddenly last summer in particular, I think because it's kind of this, these, you know, this monolith of text and these really, the storytelling is, is like, you don't need anything for suddenly last summer. I don't even think you need any kind of set at all. Like it's so, everything is coming through the language and the world is being built through the language. And I was really inspired by that. And I wanted to give myself that challenge to say like, okay, like, can I make something that can completely hold and contain itself? And, and then, you know, but in doing so also create space and room for my collaborator so that I'm not creating like muscularity and, and trying to micromanage every aspect of how the show might be designed or what the visual concept might be, but space for, for my, you know, collaborators to come in and, and be, you know, and enter this world of the play and be like, oh yes, I'm going to pull this. I'm going to pull this. I'm going to pull this. Like there's a seance in the play. You know, the play has a lot of kind of supernatural themes. And, and I think that, you know, like the simplicity of, of Jack's concept for the play is so, spot on it's like a bullseye it's like exactly what the play needs you know it's a really interesting concept and and then the designers coming in and also having the space to to continue to layer on to that like i don't think this play would have done well with with a director who was too literal in how they wanted to conceptualize the piece or design the piece because it's not about that. And I think that was those were conversations we were having in the beginning, being inspired by writers and by artists who, again, are, you know, making space for their audience that you can, you can allow your audience to kind of project themselves into this world. And can you create a vibe and an atmosphere and a mood and an experience and then give them the freedom to, to, to play with you, to, contribute, to use their imaginations, to come up with some of their own visuals, to allow their minds to collaborate on the play. And, you know, then we have David who created this amazing gestural vocabulary as well. And David is another person who's been very inspiring to me and who's, you know, I've read all of David's plays. I've seen many of his plays. I tried not to think of him too much as I was writing it because I... I wanted to write something that would be exciting for him. And I think sometimes when you think of actors and, you know, you're writing a part for someone, sometimes it becomes reductive of what they can actually do. And, you know, David Greenspan is an expansive performer. I mean, is always working, is always adding and is always bringing something new to the table. So I think it was making space for David also by saying like, let me just focus on these characters. Who are these characters? And if I'm lucky enough to get David Greenspan to do it, let's see you know what he'll what he'll create and and again the the kind of some of the the denseness of david's plays and the tightness of that the the denseness of the language and how much the language is is working for the play and creating the world 
think was inspiring. Love that list. That is wonderful. Jack, how about you? What are who inspires you? Yeah, I mean, similar to Joey, it's a, it's a real mix of, of folks. You know, a really formative theater experience for me was seeing Eva Van Hove's Scenes from a Marriage at New York Theater Workshop about 10 years ago. It just totally blew my mind and that I always feel like every work I make is an exercise in trying to recreate the feeling I felt after seeing that production. It just blew my mind, especially as it relates to form and content. And I've said this before, but that I I had never, I, I didn't know you could argue the content of a play and the, the form of it. And that was the first time I'd really experienced that and became a big fan of his. You know, one of my... Two, I should say two of my favorite artists are Michael and Abigail, who make up the company 600 Highwaymen. And they had a piece called The Fever that was at the public a few years ago that I think about all the time. And they currently, I'll give them a plug, have a show at the new Perlman Performing Arts Center downtown called The Following Evening, which I have tickets for in a couple of weeks and I can't wait to see. But 600 Highwaymen's work is always on my mind, as are people like Robert Icke and Simon Stone and a bunch of great European and, and British directors and on the American side of things, obviously, David Cromer is a huge influence in my life and in my work. And people like Anne Kaufman and Liliana Blaine Cruz have all made things that have been influential. Daniel Fish's Oklahoma was huge for me. You know, one thing I think I thought a lot about on, on Theta Barra is the great British director Emma Rice directed a production of Tristan and Yazult at St. Anne's Warehouse, probably also like 10 years ago. And I think I went back to see that show three times. Uh, I've, I've seen it in London and in Boston since it toured and was in rep with her company for a long time. And it was just like, I was just so in awe of that production. It just felt like something I would never know how to make. I, I could never make. And I, I just admired how playful and circus-like and extravagant and maximalist it was. Yeah, just I just just loved it. So, And I, I've been a follower of her work for a long time. And Peter Mills Weiss and his company, Peter and Julia, had a piece called 5050 Old School Animation and Under the Radar a bunch of years. And I think about all the, that all the time. And as well as Peter and Julia's more recent work, just saw their great show at under the radar this year. So all of them. And and then I guess I get like excited about actors. I have a real kind of addiction to like downtown New York actors of which, you know, David Greenspan is perhaps the the king of. But I, I think all of my work is is often built around just like great New York actors. I mean, those, those are the people I, you know, I got a piece of advice when I was in college, which is just to always be the, the dumbest person in the room. So I always feel like I'm surrounding myself with, with people who I can learn a lot from and, and designers as well. But I feel deeply inspired by David and, you know, a lot of the great actors I've had the privilege of working with in Ireland, Thomas J. Ryan, Will Brill. I should say Stereophonic at, at Playwrights Horizons now headed to Broadway was, was one of my favorite things I saw last year. And I think Daniel Ockin, that director, is a genius. Yeah, I think those are the things that come to mind downstate at Playwrights Horizons last year. I thought was absolutely incredible. Bruce Norris wrote that and his insistence of kind of kind of sitting in a moral gray area in that play I found so exciting. Beautifully directed by Pam McKinnon. I've name checked a lot of people. I think that's, yeah, I also like, I don't know, I think Sleep No More is kind of an obvious, obvious influence on Theta Barra. I think like Sleep No More was the first time I ever like experienced a certain magnitude of like haze in the American theater. And that has had a, a deep impact on our, our very hazy production of Onset with Theta Barra. I love that list as well. Some wonderful inspirations in the mix here. 
We have now arrived at my favorite question to ask guests, and that, of course, is what is your favorite theater memory? I don't know if this is, well, yeah, this is a theater memory that was maybe the earliest theater memory, and I'm not sure if it was, I'm not sure if it's my favorite, but it's what came to my, it's, it's what popped up right now, and I was a kid. I must have been like eight or nine years old, and we went to go see this community theater production of of the sound of music and it was in this barn and we were sitting on hay and during the intermission I went out with the rest of the audience and my parents but I kind of wandered away from my parents because down this kind of alley leading to the back of the barn I could see these nuns from the show and as this kid I you know I thought oh I want to go say hello to these nuns and I went back there and these actors you know, dressed as nuns were on their cigarette. They were like smoking cigarettes dressed as the nuns. And I was like, who knows what I said? I was probably just like, hi, like I, you know, can I have your autograph? I don't know what I said. I don't even know like how conscious I was of the separation between, you know, like what I was seeing on stage. It was one of the earliest theater experiences I had. So who knows how conscious I was of like what that line was. And so, and I just remember one of the nuns like screaming at me and she's like, what are you doing? Where's your parents? Like, who do you belong to? Like, get out of here. You can't be back here. It's backstage. And I was like, <laughs> you know, a rude awakening. <laughs> like, I was like, okay, and I like ran away. But I was exhilarated by that experience. And I think that was a moment that kind of popped for me where I was like, oh, what is this weird thing? Like, who are these? Are they nuns or aren't they? Like, what are they doing? Like, you know, nuns smoke cigarettes and like, why are they, what do, what do they mean by backstage? And I don't know. I think that really like intrigued me and got me interested in figuring out how I could cross into this other world and be, be on the other side of things. I love that memory. Yes. That was such a good story, Joey. I, I feel like I don't have as good of one. I, you know, I I think the thing that comes to mind is I, uh, when I was young and delusional, I ran a theater company in my teens in Boston, and we put on all these kind of challenging plays that teenagers weren't really supposed to do, like like God of Carnage and All My Sons. And I ran that company with my friends for five years, and I just think like the the collective memory of of of, of those years and running that company and the scrappiness of that and the the kind of late nights and building the sets ourselves and just how ramshackle the whole thing was, but also how serious we were about it. And, you know, that was that was really foundational for me. And I, I can't imagine any of that work was very good. And I'm glad no video recordings of it exist. But it was the 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 soil that like, you know, my my seeds of 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 interest in theater were really tended to. And it was, you know, like a meaningful time to, and it felt like the purest form of the thing of just of just putting on shows with your friends and in, in spaces that you can find because you were unsatisfied with the opportunities you had. And I feel like that same ethos is still why I'm making work today. Another wonderful memory. I love that. Thank you both for sharing those memories. Those are fabulous. Well, as we wrap things up, I would love to know, are there any other projects or productions that either of you have coming down the pipeline that we might be able to plug for you? 
Yeah, I have running right now a production I, I produced and directed called The Animal Kingdom, running at the, the Connolly Theater upstairs. And we just extended for a week. So that runs through February 17th. I'm very proud of that show. It's kind of both complimentary and entirely contrasting to Peter Barra. But yet there's still some tickets left for the extension. You can get it at animalkingdomplay.com. And I have a play coming out in June called Midnight Coleslaw's Tales from Beyond the Closet. And it's kind of like a midnight queer horror hour with framed in an Elvira or Crypt Keeper type way where I've invented this drag queen named Midnight Coleslaw who will host this evening. And there'll be three queer horror one acts and in between performances from Midnight and her sidekick, a talking skull named Boner. So there'll be lots of head jokes and things. And that'll be at the Tank on West 36th Street in June during Pride. Two fantastic works. One happening now, one coming up, both of which we're very excited about. And a great lead into our final question, which is if our listeners would like more information about Onset with Theda Barra or about either of you, perhaps they'd like to reach out to you, how can they do so? For Theda Barra, you can go to the transport group's website, which I'm sure is something like transportgroup.com or .org. .org, transportgroup.org. There we go. There we go. And come see us at the Brick in Williamsburg right off the Metropolitan L stop. And you can learn more about me at jackserio.com or at jackserio on Instagram. Yeah. And I have joeymerlo.com or Instagram is at jojomerlo, J-O-E-J-O-E-M-E-R-L-O. Wonderful. Well, Jack, Joey, thank you both so much for taking the time today to speak with me and sharing this incredible, incredible show. This really this great experience. It sounds so wonderful. We can't wait to check it out. So thank you very much for your time today. Thank, thank you, you, Andrew. Thanks, Andrew. Looking forward to seeing you at the show. My guests today have been the director, Jack Serio, and the playwright, Joey Merlo, who are both part of Transport Group and Lucille Lordal Theater's presentation of On Set with Theta Berra. It's playing now through March 9th at The Brick, and you can get your tickets and more information by visiting transportgroup.org or lortel.org. This is a wonderful show that you won't want to miss, so make sure you hurry and get your tickets right now. It's a Fabulous evening out, fabulous experience at a 35-foot-long table. I mean, who doesn't want to go do that? We also have some wonderful contact information for our guests, which we'll be posting on our episode description as well as on our social media posts. But make sure you join us out at The Brick to see On Set with Theta Berra playing now through March 9th. So until next time... I'm Andrew Cortez reminding you to turn off your cell phones, unwrap your candies, and keep talking about the theater in a stage whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. And be sure to check out our website for all things Stage Whisper and theater. You'll be able to find merchandise, tours, tickets, and more. Simply visit stagewhisperpod.com. 
Our theme song is Maniac by Jazzar. Other music on this episode provided by Jazzar and Billy Murray. You can also become a patron of our show by logging on to patreon.com slash stagewhisperpod. There you will find all the information about our backstage pass as well as our tip jar. Thank you so much for your generosity. We could not do this show without you.